Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you for this beautiful body and church of believers who make it a priority to come and gather together. Thank you for revealing mysteries. Thank you for showing us the world around us. Everything we see and reveal and know is, is due to your revelation of us. Lord, we pray that you would do something supernatural and that you would take your breathed out scripture and that you would plant it deep in us, that you do something miraculous. Help me, guide me in the truth. I pray that these words would be your words, not my words, and that you would be through the Holy Spirit moving in people, that these wouldn't just be words, but they would move into application through their day, that they would be in more treasure and worship of you because of this. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you can be seated. All right, so join me in turning to Romans chapter 11. We're going to be starting in verse 25. While you're turning, I just wanted to say I hope you and your family had a great Thanksgiving. It's officially the Christmas time, so Athena and I decorated yesterday and the day before, and also the churches. So if you're one of the few people that came to help decorate the church, uh, Thank you. It doesn't just happen. These people came during their week, and they had food to prepare, Thanksgiving, uh, all these things that I can't imagine, like adding on, and they said, hey, I want to show up to the church and also decorate for Christmas. So if that was you, thank you. We need you. We love you. And it looks great. So uh, we appreciate that. So if you're in there with your, in your text with me, chapter 11, verse 25, let's just jump into it. Let's begin reading. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. Brothers, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. This is the holy word of God breathed out for our good. Now, in 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter tells his audience that there are some things in Paul's letters that are difficult to understand. And I believe that this section in Paul's writing is on a high list of difficult things to understand. In fact, I don't want you to be unaware that there is some significant debate, but mostly good debate on this passage by Christians finding and seeking out the truth in faith, as I would describe seeking understanding for this text. This is one of the reasons that I love that our church is to practice exegetically preaching through books of the Bible. We're in Romans. This is Romans 11. 
We have a lot of work that we've done before to get here, so it's important to know that. But we don't have the option to skip over this passage. Uh, And I don't believe that this passage would be on the top of the list of topical preaching for a lot of people. Uh, So here it is. It's God's Word, and it's a beautiful treasure and insight and redemptive plan of God. God meant to give us this passage for us. So let's do the hard but rewarding work for truth and clarity. I think it's going to be helpful. It's at least helpful for me, so I think it's going to be helpful that we do this together. If we take a moment to remember the context of where we are in Romans and how we got here. In a bigger picture, some people mark Romans 12 as the turning point in Paul's letter from a Romans 1 through 11 of laying out God's saving mercy, more of a theological type of view, and chapter 12 shifts to more of a daily application. So we're right right before that. We've only got this sermon and next week's sermons, and then Romans 12 will get into that daily application. But additionally, our passage today is part of a smaller section in chapters 9 through 11, where God, uh, uh, Paul is explaining God's righteousness to Israel and to the Gentiles. This passage serves as a climatic emphasis for his final arguments in chapters 9 through 11. Remember back in chapter 9, Paul is predicting an argument that is going to be made from his Gentile audience. This retort he expects is, how can we as Gentiles be sure of our salvation? We see that Israel is promised all the glory, the covenants, the law, and worship, but where are the Jewish Christians now? It does not appear that the promises of God to His people still stand. It appears that the Word of God has failed, that God has rejected His people. It seems that Israel's faithlessness nullifies God's faithfulness. Let's look at this outline in this section up to our text today. This is important to see how our text fits in the overall passage. Keep in mind, this is a very simplified overview. Paul answers this expected response by saying, the word of God has not failed. Has the word of God failed? No. The word of God has not failed. All Israel is, is not all Israel is Israel. God's people are people of faith, chosen by his mercy. Has the word of God failed? No. The redemption of the Gentiles was his plan all along. Has the word of God failed? No. Israel's unbelief is their own responsibility, not failure in God's sovereignty. They have no excuse since they have heard the word, understood the word, but they are still disobedient. Then in chapter 11, he answers another question. Has God rejected his people? No, God has not rejected his people. There is a remnant of ethnic Israel that he continues to save in each generation. Paul says, look at myself. I'm an example. I'm someone who's Jewish that's saved. No, their trespasses, the Jewish trespasses, opened up salvation to the Gentiles. And God has the power to graft Israel back into the olive tree. So this takes us back to our passage today. Let's break down and look for clarity and implication and Paul's final explanation and emphasis on why the word of God has not failed and why God has not rejected his people. So I have two sections today, if you're taking notes. The first section is Israel's salvation, and that's in verses 25 through 27. So, starting in verse 25, lest you be wise in your own sight. Paul continues his warning to the Gentiles, building on what we talked about last week, that he says in verse 18, 
do not be arrogant toward the branches, because the Gentiles do not support the root Israel, but Israel supports you. And verse 20, so do not become proud, but fear, because you too will be cut off if you do not continue in his kindness. Paul continues to warn the Gentiles from looking at the Jews in an arrogant way to avoid the thought that the Gentiles are now better than the Jews. This line of thinking is going to take the Gentiles into a non-biblical conclusion. That is, that God has rejected the Jews, that there is no salvation for them, and that the word of God has failed. Paul interrupts this line of thinking by explaining God's redemptive plan. Continuing in verse 25, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. The important word to note here is mystery. The word mystery or mysteries is used around 33 times in the Bible. The Bible and Paul's use of mystery is different than how we use mystery in our normal conversation. We use the word mystery to kind of say something that is kept secret, remains unknown, or unexplained. We might wrongfully say to someone, how in the world did he end up marrying her? And they would say, I don't know, it is a mystery to me. Which means, really, I will never understand how he ended up with her. They will never know. They do not understand. This is not how the Bible uses the word mystery. The way the Bible uses the word mystery is it's talking or describing something that was once unknown, but now has been revealed. More specifically, it means that the plans of God, hidden from human reason, that are now revealed to those whom they were intended. Let's look inside the letter of Romans for how Paul uses the same word later in the letter. So turn a couple pages to me uh, with me, uh, chapter 16, verse 25 through 26. Chapter 16, verse 25 through 26. All right, now to him who is able to strengthen you according to the, my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but now has been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God. This is what Paul means when he says the word mystery, right? So here we are in this passage, and Paul says, I don't want you to be prideful. I'm going to tell you about this mystery of Israel's salvation to his Gentile audience. So what is this mystery that he's now revealing to his Gentile Roman audience? There's three things, picking back up in the text, right? That number one, a partial hardening has come upon Israel. Number two, the hardening will last until the, Gentile, the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in verse 26, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. Let's look at the first part of the revelation of this mystery, that a partial hardening has come upon Israel. Paul is answering the retort we already mentioned from the Gentiles. The Gentiles look around, and it does not seem like there are many Christians, any Jews, becoming Christians. Why is that? Paul answers that this is because there's now a partial hardening of Israel. Notice that this is the same language that Paul uses in Romans 9.18, when he says, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Well, what makes the hardening partial for Israel and not a complete hardening? Notice back in uh, chapter 11, verse 5, so too, at this present time, 
there's a remnant chosen by grace. The hardening of Israel is not complete hardening because still to this day, God is saving ethnic Jews by their conversion in Christ. The hardening of Israel is also not permanent. The partial hardening of Israel will continue until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. The fullness of the Gentiles refers to the full number of the elect from among the Gentiles. In other words, when the last Gentile in God's redemptive plan that God foreknew before the beginning of time converts to Christ. How is the fullness of the Gentiles achieved? The full number of the Gentiles is achieved as the gospel is proclaimed throughout the world and will be completed by the the time of Christ's appearance again, his second coming. Friends, this does not negate the urgency of missions and the immediacy, immediacy of the end of times. We do not know when the last Gentile will come to faith. That is why missions is important. As long as Christ has not come back, there's still work to do. We must look into verse 26 to get our understanding of what this looks like when the partial hardening is finished or lifted. Now, verse 26 is the verse that makes this passage more difficult to understand and where the debate of the interpretation of the passage lies. I want you to be aware of the different types of interpretation for this passage, and so I will explain them. But as a warning, you can really get into the weeds on this. Uh, And I do not think that is my intent, and that's not the intent of Paul here. I think it would be a mistake to spend all the time during this sermon talking about the interpretations of the text and missing out on the authorial intent for this passage. So here I'm going to tell you the wave tops of each argument, and then I'm going to advocate for my position. There are generally six views of interpretation for this verse and passage. The debate lies in what Paul means when he says, all Israel. When that the debate lies when he says, all Israel, when the salvation of Israel occurs, and how will they be saved? Or in other words, in this way, what does that mean? So I made a little uh, reference for the different views here. You do not have to write this down. I just want to say it's, it's up for you to easier see what I'm talking about. Okay, you don't have to write it down. But here's what different interpretations are, okay? Number one, some people believe all Israel means all ethnic Jews from all time will be saved. The second view is the sum of the elect ethnic Jews of all time will be saved. The third is that all ethnic Jews alive at the end of time will be saved. The fourth, all elect ethnic Jews alive at the end of the age will be saved. The fifth, a large number of ethnic Jews at the end of the age will be saved. And the sixth view is that Israel is redefined to say this is a spiritual Israel and Jews and Gentiles who believe in Jesus Christ from all time will be saved. So, I want to say, I have, uh, I think four of these are very good, like good, normal, orthodox views. I think two of them are outside the terms of biblical uh, interpretation, and this, this is the view number one and three. And the reason I think these are difficult to understand is because they usually follow that the Jews will simply be saved because they're Jewish. And that either all alive at the end of the time or the beginning, they're simply saved because they're Jewish, a.k.a. They don't have to have faith in Jesus Christ to be saved. I do not think that is a biblical view. I think the other four are good views, but I have a hard time believing 
somebody saying that they are going to be saved simply because the Jews. Then what's the point of Jesus' death on the cross? Uh, so that's why I have a hard time going to one and three on this view. Now, it's important to say that plenty of sound theologians hold to their own variety of the remaining four views, and they're in their own standard completely okay to hold to. The good news is that it does not change the meaning of the passage, but it does shift emphasis. In my research, John Calvin and some of our elders hold to the sixth view. R.C. Sproul and John Piper hold to the fourth view. Uh, my pastor of my last church held to the fifth view, and I personally hold to the second view. So I will first address the time of the event. I have laid down my cards. You now know that I have stated and I hold to a second view, which interprets that the time of salvation is an ongoing event. The sixth view also believes this. So the views of a future event believed that in this way is referring to scripture quoted by Paul that is specifically interpreted to say that the passage is using these Old Testament prophecies, so I'm talking about verses 26 and 27, that these refer to the second coming, not the first coming. So in this way would mean there is a time in between the last Gentile and Christ's second coming where a mass of Jews will convert to Christianity. Here is why I believe it to be an ongoing thing, not a future event. Look at me at verse 31. In verse 31 it says, So they too have now been disobedient in order that by mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. Notice that Paul does not say that they will receive mercy. The language of Paul is not describing a future event for which they will receive mercy, but describes the present offer of mercy if they do not continue in their unbelief. The now is a super important piece for me. Number two, why I don't believe it to be a future event. Paul quotes in the Old Testament in verse 26 and 27. It's important to know that when Paul references Zion in reference to the second coming and all others of his letters, he explicitly does so. The Old Testament's use of Zion quoted refers to the first coming of Jesus out of Jerusalem. The passages quoted here are from Isaiah 59, 20 through 21, and Jeremiah 31 through 34. It is important to note that these prophecies were fulfilled in Jesus Christ, first coming. Israel's sins were taken away when Jesus died on the cross, and I don't believe necessarily in a future event. Number three, why I don't believe it to be a future event, but a current reality. Paul does not reference in any other of his letters a significant future salvation event for Jews. This would be a huge event with massive implications. I believe that it would be mentioned somewhere else in the Bible. I believe that you, I would expect that you would find this mentioned in more passages. And number four, I believe that a future event does not encourage an imminent view of the second coming of Jesus Christ. If Christ does not come until a massive event of Jews converting to Christianity, then some people would say, well, I'll just live my life how I want to until a massive amount of people turn to Christ. That's not how we encourage an imminent view that he can come back like a thief in the night. Next day, any time, Jesus can return. So this leaves us with two views that I think are the closest interpretations of the text, verse, uh, view 2 and 6. They're very, very close in their interpretations. View 6 argues on Paul's use in Romans 9, 6-9. Remember that not all Israel is Israel and takes into account the other letters where Paul argues for God's children of the promise to be those of faith 
not just of ethnicity, race, and status. Therefore, in this view, verse 26 says that all elect Jews and all Gentiles together, known as spiritual Israel, make up all Israel. Both the second and the sixth view would hold that in this way refers to what precedes it. The specific part of a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in, has come in. This is the same way as the full number of the Gentiles. How will all of Israel come in? The same way that all the Gentiles' fullness is achieved. Paul's meaning is that the hardening of Israel will persist until that full number of Gentiles has come in. And as the Gentiles are coming in, many Jews will also be coming in. And in this way, by the time Christ appears the second time, the hardness will have disappeared and all Israel is saved. These two separate here in that one believes that it is specifically saying that the conclusion of the fullness of the Gentiles and Israel, then all Israel will be saved. The other says that two groups are saved in the same way. But in this text, Paul is specifically emphasizing and bringing to light the Jewish, ethnic Jewish salvation. The difficulty I have with the spiritual Israel view is that it breaks the pattern of text set through this section. Paul starts off in chapter 9 by addressing his longing for the salvation of his kinsmen, the Israelites. I believe that this specific concern for this group is being answered in verse 26. For the plans of his kinsmen's salvation, not both the Jews and the Gentiles. It is agreed upon that from, this, from Romans chapter 9, verse 30, up to verse 26, when Paul mentions Israel, or they, Paul must be talking about ethnic Israel. When he mentions you, he's talking to his audience, Gentile Romans. The pattern of these sections is to differentiate the two for comparison. Paul continues to use they and you, Israel, you, Gentiles. There's a split. So following verse 26, he also continues, they are enemies for your sake. So those who accept that the verse 26 means spiritual Israel believe that the usage here in verse 26 is a special and intentional choice made by Paul that breaks his pattern of differentiating between Israel and the Gentiles before and after this verse. I do not find this as convincing. I believe that in this verse, Paul continues his pattern from verse 26, or verse 25, 26, and 28 to both be a split. And therefore, that this is, this all Israel means all ethnic, elect ethnic Israel. And since they will be saved, that's why they're elect. Now, that I have laid out my view, it's completely fine to hold to another view of the four. Like I said, we all get to the same conclusion, but a different emphasis. That conclusion is that God has not forgotten his people. God has a plan for his people. Jewish people will become Christians. They will be saved, whether throughout time or in a massive future event. And I want to reiterate, it's important to say that the Jewish people will not be saved because they're simply Jewish. I am not unaware of the conflict in Israel right now. And almost every time I researched one of these sermons, it seemed like every single pastor had something to talk about politically about what's going on in Israel, whether it was in 2000 or 19, whenever it was. There always seems to be something. But even now, I'm, I'm not ignorant of it. 
But Israel's savior is not America. It's not themselves. It's not a political ploy or any country for that matter. Israel's savior is Jesus Christ. When we say in this way or as the same way as the Gentiles, how were they saved? By Jesus. Jesus, the deliverer, came from Zion. He delivered his people from their sin and ungodliness by dying on a cross. He established his covenant of faith with his people, the very people that were disobedient to him, that anyone who believes in him would have everlasting life. This is the gift of grace that God gives to those he foreknew. If you're a Christian, and this is, this is how you're saved too, you and I were walking on this earth. We were at enmity with God, pursuing our own desires and flesh, a sin machine. But yet, we were shown common grace in that the fact the penalty for sin against a good and holy God is death. Yet, we did not die. But the height of our disposition against God, we were given warmth by the sun, food, water, and friends. This is a gift of God gives to those against him. But it gets better. God then rescued us by regenerating us so that our veil and enmity against God is lifted and it's turned into beauty, faith, and fellowship. Your sins were put on Jesus as a treasure and realize what a sinner you were that, and he's a great savior. He gives you his Holy Spirit who is now at work in you, helping you to walk in this life of what has been done for you. This is Israel's salvation. This is the salvation for the Jews, a salvation of faith in Jesus Christ. This is salvation for anyone. If you're in this room and not a Christian, this is also could be your salvation. All right, now that I've laid out that part of the text, I think since we've laid out my cards and the interpretation, we can move to section two. God's irrevocable call and mercy for all. This is in verses 28 through 32. In verse 28, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. The they again here refers to Jews. The partial hardening would now show that they are indeed an enemy of the gospel. Not only are they just enemies against God, but most recognize that the Jewish community was the strongest and most aggressive persecutors of Christians in the early church. I think Paul is addressing both that Christians now face opposition and persecution from Jews, and that the Jews themselves were opposed to God and opposed to the gospel. This opposition is for the sake and the benefit of the Gentiles. Paul has already told us why this is. Go back to verse 11. Through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Paul will give us a little bit more detail in how this trade works out in verse 30, which we will get to. But Paul continues, But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Remember that Paul is trying to lower Gentile pride and prevent a hatred against Jews. Remember that God calls us to love our enemies. For the Gentiles, election is dependent on the holy root that we have been grafted into. That holy root is the promises of God to Israel, to Abraham, to Jacob, to Isaac. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. 
These promises for the Jews will be fulfilled. But a reminder that in 2 Corinthians 1.20, and we also sang it, all of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. God has not forgotten His people. Jewish people will continue to convert to Christianity. In verse 29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Meaning, the gifts and the calling of God are not able to change or be reversed. Gifts here meaning the gift of salvation. Paul is explaining here that what God has said will come true does come true. He is saying that there is no contradiction from what God has said and promised in the past to the present and future reality for the Jews. God is faithful to His promises. This is why Israel's salvation is sure, because it rests in God alone, not in what we do. Christians, I hope this is a great comfort for you, as it is to me. You see, the salvation was given to us. It is not the paycheck of salvation. Not anything of our own doing, but simply because God wanted to give us the gift. The gift includes His calling of us. This passage is emphasizing the gold chain. Remember in Romans 8, 29-30, that those who He foreknew, He predestined, He called, He justified, and glorified. Since God is the only one that does all of this, then we can't mess it up. And it surely we will be done since this calling is irrevocable. Christians, you have eternal security. Christians, this is true of you today. You might be in a season of despair, grief, hardship, doubt. You might could describe yourself as wandering through the desert like Israel. After Egypt, waiting on the promised land, struggling and lingering on. But Israel reaches the promised land. God made sure of it. His calling of Israel out of Egypt was irrevocable. His calling of you from your out and sinful past is irrevocable. He who began a good work in you will bring it to its completion. He's going to see it through. It's not on you. You will reach the promised land of heaven because it's not up to you. God will not go back on His word and will not forget you. And He's not going to forget Israel. He's not rejected His people. Verse 30 and 31. For just as you, the Gentiles, were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their Jewish disobedience, so they, Jews, too, have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, Gentiles, they, Jews, also may now receive mercy. Paul gives us more insight in how this mystery unravels by further describing the interaction of the Jews and Gentiles in God's saving plan for both of them. This is how the jealousy that we read in verse 11 plays out. Gentiles were at one time disobedient to God, but in Christ they have now received mercy. Now the Jews are showing their disobedience through their partial hardening. They look to the Gentiles who are benefiting from the same promises that they were made to them, and it evokes them to jealousy. It's a shock and a revelation to them that the evidences of God's mercy to Gentiles serves as a validation for Jesus Christ and His death on the cross. They must think, surely, since the Gentiles are inheriting 
the very promises given to us, and we are not, we must have missed the truth. And that the cross and the Jesus Christ as the Messiah is the truth. This is the design of Israel's salvation and coming to Christ. This is the design that Christians are to live our life in a display to everyone around us as evidences of God's glory and mercy and the majesty of God and what He's done for us. In verse 32, he says, For God has consigned all to disobedience, that He may have mercy on all. Here's what I believe that Paul combines the Jews and the Gentiles. This is where I believe that he combines them. When he uses the word all, I believe he is saying both Jews and Gentiles, or all people, groups, tribes, and nations have been consigned to disobedience. So that at the end of the time, he may have mercy on both Jews and Gentiles. I believe this is what he means by the word all. I do not believe that this means that as in every single person, since that breaks the context of the text, and that would imply that every single person would be saved. I don't think that's what he's saying. And we can tie this back to Romans 9, 22 through 23. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory? Our last week to notice and remember the kindness and severity of God. We've already established in our study of Romans that because God has assigned all to disobedience, consigned all to disobedience, that does not mean that you are not responsible for your disobedience. God's consigning all to disobedience is for him to have mercy on all. And that creates the most God-glorifying plan of salvation for Jews and Gentiles. This is God's beautiful plan of redemption that he has now revealed to us. Our God is in the heavens, and He does whatever He pleases. This beautiful plan rests in the Christ, Jesus Christ, in the cross, the glory of the cross, the pinnacle event of mercy for us. I think this quote I found in the studies was super helpful. This is from Athanasius of Alexandria. He puts it this way. Christ's death on the cross reconciles all people both Jews and Gentiles, to himself. The cross was the most suitable way for Christ to die, since on its hands were stretched out symbolically one arm summons the Gentiles, while the other welcomes the Jews, both peoples uniting in Christ on the cross. All right, some points of application for you. Number one, thank God for his mercy to you and confess your pride. It's all God. It's His irrevocable call, His irrevocable mercy to you. Confess your pride because there's no room for pride in the Christian cross. You have to realize your sins were the very sins that pierced Jesus Christ. Your sins are what made it necessary for Him to die. That's hard to be prideful. Number two, don't give out hope for the Jews evangelize and love them well and faithfully. If we truly believe that there's salvation for them, that means we also have to go evangelize to them, just like every people group, every tribe, every nation, every tongue. Jewish people need the gospel. They're going to believe in Jesus Christ. We must evangelize to them. They're still God's plan. God has not rejected them. Also, 
Christians, we have some history of some anti-Semitism. There is no room for anti-Semitism in the gospel. Jews are part of God's redemptive plan. We are known as Christians by our love, not a prideful view of the views that they've missed it, they don't understand, they've missed the Messiah. Instead of showing that pride, you should be showing compassion in evangelizing and reaching to them, sharing the love of Jesus Christ in your life. Number three, take time, and I think this is the most important application right here. Observe this wonderful mystery of salvation. Contemplate this week on this complex and beautiful plan unfolding as we speak. Ponder on how God has and will achieve the salvation of all his people. This brings me to the last thing to close. Next week, Justin's going to preach on this passage, Lord willing, a passage that is the application of a bursting forth out of praise from Paul, a doxology. I eagerly await the sermon and find it fitting to close by reading it since this is what this passage is supposed to do. It's supposed to intend to produce a doxology and a worship of God, that this is a complex mystery now revealed. Rejoice, worship, praise. God has done something in you. He's doing something to this day. There's a mystery unfolding, and God is great and glorious, and it's his plan that he's doing. So turn with me, and let's finish in Romans 11, 33 through 36. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, Thank you for revealing mysteries. Thank you for your salvation, for me and for all those here. Lord, I pray that we would treasure you more, that our love would go out and share with those. We pray that we would confess our pride, that we have no room for pride in the gospel, that everything was done by you, and we're completely and utterly dependent on your saving grace for us. Lord, move this, this passage into application. Don't let it just fall on deaf ears. May Miller Heights be a people who evangelizes, loves, and seeks out others so that we may share the treasure that we possess. In Jesus' name, amen.